Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. I'm Dr. Levi Sowers, and with me, as always, is Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. This is the final episode of the first season. Uh, It's episode seven, and it's quite exciting to be on our last episode of season one. Um, It's been a long journey uh, from beginning to end here, and uh, I think we have a really special guest for you today. His name's Dr. Christy Thomas. He's a nephrologist at the University of Iowa and the Iowa City VA healthcare system. And with that, let's hear from Dr. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Christy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so, um, your name's Dr. Christy Thomas, yeah, and that's then correct. Um, and I was where'd you grow up? Given that name when I was an infant. Where'd you grow that's up? Nice. At? Well, it gets complicated. Yeah, you don't sure. know how much you want to know. You just talk. Yeah. So, well, so I was born in India. Um, I came here when I was two years old. Went back when I was four years old, mm-hmm. and then grew up. Did my entire growing up in India. Nice. And uh, apparently I learned English when I was here. I got back to India. I forgot all that English. <laughs> but anyway, came back here when I was in my early 30s. Mm-hmm. I'm now in my early 60s. So you didn't learn English until your 30s? No, no, no. No, you learned it. And then... Well, no, no. So, no, I did. I just forgot my American English. Oh, um, okay. And Fair. then had learned the Royal English, British English. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, but you know, I grew up in India pretty much, but there was a two-year sojourn here in the south side of Chicago. And where did you go? Before civil rights. Oh. Before the civil rights era, where if you wanted to know, I came home from preschool or kindergarten and said, "What's wrong with being black?" Someone must have called me black, and I Uh didn't know what that really why it mattered. And so. So did you do college here? In so I did all of my my um, high, my schooling, my um, undergraduate medical education in India, mm-hmm. and then spent uh, four years in England um, doing my my early postgraduate in internal medicine, um, and then came to Cleveland and spent four years in nephrology. And where where in England? Um, two years in uh, in. Uh, Place called Sunderland, mm-hmm. uh, about an hour outside of Newcastle in the north of England, and the next two years was in Sheffield. But that was um, thirty-five years ago that I sure almost forty years since I finished medical school. And so oh, you wow. came to the U.S. for residency then. Yeah. Did my my uh, completed my nephrology training and then came here as a staff in nineteen ninety-two. Very nice. So how'd you end up in the great state of Iowa? Uh, Good question. Well, um, I guess when I uh, finished my training in Cleveland, we had to make a decision about where it is that we wanted to um, uh, find a job. And there were some limitations. One, because um, I I was on a visa and I needed to um, have an institution that was receptive to converting my visa to a green card and mm-hmm. a subsequent um, um, citizenship. I needed a place that would take someone like me that was fresh out of training and would sort of um, 
put their faith in me and give me the opportunity to do research, give me the resources I need to do research, um, allow me to, um, uh, the freedom to do the type of research that I wanted to do, while at the same time contributing to the clinical mission of the institution. And, and I came and did my job interview here. I was pretty impressed with the place. Mm. Um, very large medical institution, well known in the state of Iowa. At the time that I came here, it was the largest um, public hospital in the country in the terms of the number of beds that the, that the university hospital had. Uh, and the VA at that time was already well known for the strength of its research. Um, I met my colleagues, uh, my future colleagues at the time, they seemed to be particularly warm. And I now know in retrospect that what Iowa nice means. But back then, I didn't really know that. Um, I had some apprehensions about coming to a small place like Iowa, having been in Cleveland, uh, wondering whether this would be big enough for us. But I have to say, I've been very comfortable here. I expect to continue to work here till I retire, uh, and then maybe we'll even live our retired lives here. For sure. Mm -hmm. So the transition into the VA, how did that occur? So, or did, um, you, did you come for the VA here, or did um, you come to the university? So I came here with the understanding that um, every one of us in the Division of Nephrology, uh, that is the Department of Medicine division that deals with kidney diseases, that every one of us in the Division of Nephrology um, who are taking care of patients with kidney disease would see patients both at the university hospital and at the VA. It was the expectation that each of us practiced in both places. In more recent years, it's gotten a little bit more compartmentalized and one needs special appointments to work at the VA. But back then, all of us did. And so I've always been working at the VA just as much as I've worked at the university. Um, and um, this has been a particularly gratifying place to work because veterans, more so than any other patient that I've met, have been um, you know, very gracious as patients, uh, very grateful for the care that you provide, and are very forgiving if um, there's something that you might have forgotten to do. Hmm. So it's an extremely nice place to to um, meet patients, see patients, and take care of them. You know, that was, go ahead. So what initially drew you to nephrology? That um, is a um, complex question that I get asked a lot, um, mostly by medical students and young residents in internal medicine. And honestly, I don't know the answer to that. Um, as a medical student, I always knew that I wanted to do internal medicine, mostly because internal medicine is more about problem solving rather than about um, um, surgery um, or anesthesia. And it seemed to, for me, have a, a special attraction. Mm. And while I was training in internal medicine, uh, the specialty within internal medicine that appeared to be the most complicated uh, and yet most interesting and somewhat mathematical because of the fluids and electrolytes and various other changes that happen in the in the blood compartment and other fluid spaces in the body. Um, it appeared to be particularly, if you want to say, intellectually challenging. Mm -hmm. And when I was considering this as a specialty, nephrology was sort of in its infancy. Um, transplants were just beginning to become mainstream. Um, dialysis wasn't widespread. Um, and there was a time when certain people with some diseases or certain people of a particular age group were not 
given the option to dialyze because we didn't really think that they were going to benefit from it. Mm. So that was a time that there was um, a lot of change happening in nephrology and it seemed to be a nice time to enter the field. And I have to say I have no regrets. Yeah, you know, you were talking about veterans being a particularly gratifying group of people to work with. Um, the, the, what we got from them is that they are um, extremely grateful for the care they get. That was something that really came mm -hmm. across from the from the kidney transplant patients, especially. Most um, definitely. That was uh, kind of, it, it almost gave me like goosebumps because I was like, the uh, they they just seemed so grateful for the care they received and that was pretty impressive, more so than any of the other specialties that we've talked to so far, which was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, we, I studied polycyst polycystic kidney disease a little bit when I was in uh, my PhD. And um, what are the most common reasons for someone to need a kidney transplant or um, what would cause the you know major problems with your kidneys? Um, so in adults, um, the commonest cause of kidney disease in the United States is um, diabetes. Uh, the second commonest cause is thought to be high, high blood pressure or hypertension, although we now realize that most kidney disease that we attribute to hypertension may not really be from hypertension. And the reason is that um, kidney disease can cause high blood pressure. High blood pressure can cause kidney disease and it's the chicken and the egg story. Sometimes if we detect high blood pressure at the same time that we're detecting kidney disease, we can't really be sure which came first. And for more often than not, high blood pressure is assumed to be the cause of kidney disease without adequate evidence. But those are the two probably commonest causes for kidney disease um, in the United States today. Um, you mentioned polycystic kidney disease. That's the commonest inherited or genetic cause of kidney disease um, in the US. It probably is the one of the more common serious genetic diseases in any organ system and it uh, it mm -hmm. affects about one in 500 to one in 1000 people and about eight to ten percent of people on dialysis have polycystic kidney disease how common is kidney disease overall like is it is it more common in the veteran population versus the general population where is it so there are many risk factors for kidney disease. Um, some of them reflect um, genetic influences. So diabetes, we talked about, mm -hmm. is a is a um, is a disease that has genetic susceptibility that can then go on to cause kidney disease. We discussed some genetic conditions that can directly affect kidney disease, such as polycystic disease. There are some acquired conditions. So being born low birth weight or being born premature. Um, having um, um, lower socioeconomic status, um, having less access to medications, uh, being overweight, um, can all increase your risk of kidney disease. Uh, it turns out that men have a higher risk of kidney disease compared to women. Um, women who have certain complications in pregnancy, like preeclampsia, a condition that causes high blood pressure and protein in the urine that is apparently transient and gets better with pregnancy, with resolution of the pregnancy can in future years be associated with increased risk of kidney disease. Um, being of certain um, ancestry, so African Americans have a much higher risk of kidney disease than those of European or Indian ancestry like myself. Hmm. Um, and so one can have genetic susceptibility, socioeconomic um, conditions, 
um, uh, race, ethnicity, gender-based um, uh, influences, and a variety of acquired conditions that can all together influence your overall risk of kidney disease. So Dr. Thomas, how do people know that they have these diseases? What are the symptoms that they tend to develop? So more often than not, kidney disease is silent. Um, so you know, when a person has heart disease, they have shortness of breath or they have chest pain. When a person has lung disease, they often can't breathe and it's pretty obvious to that person that something is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't have the equivalent in kidney disease. So for, for the most part, if people have a problem with their kidney function, they don't stop peeing, they don't pee any less, they don't pee any more. They just sort of seem to have a slow decline in their overall health. And when their kidney function declines to such a drastic extent that they need to be considering um, you know, a replacement for their own kidney function with a dialysis machine or with a kidney transplant, about the only symptom they have do not directly relate to the kidneys themselves. So the patients will often not have a clue. Mm. They may be tired, they may notice some swelling in their feet, they may lose their appetite, particularly for meat, they may start to lose weight, they may not sleep well, they may not be thinking straight, but these are all rather um, non-specific, meaning they don't really point to a particular organ system, non-specific symptoms that often leave the patient and sometimes the physician clueless as to exactly what the problem is. And the only way, for the most part, to determine someone has advanced kidney disease is to be doing blood tests mm. to see whether the kidney function tests that we look at are um, substantially abnormal or deranged. And that's pretty much how the vast majority of people find out that they have kidney disease. And not surprisingly, a significant fraction of people find out that their kidney disease is very advanced before they've had any inkling that that is the case. Yeah, so so is kidney disease a type of disease that can be slowed with, with uh, treatment if you do catch it, happen to catch it early? Yes, yes, and that's a very important point. So the best that we can do for kidney disease is inform people about the potential risk factors that increase the risk for kidney disease. So you want to try and avoid um, uh, becoming a diabetic or developing high blood pressure. Among the things that prevent diabetes is avoiding weight gain, um, increased activity, um, especially um, fairly moderate or high intensity exercise. Uh, and uh, eating right, um, a relatively lower calorie, uh, low fat diet that is both good for preventing diabetes and for preventing weight gain. Um, having a low salt diet, uh, uh, avoiding smoking, uh, abstaining from alcohol, um, and so on will reduce your risk of developing high blood pressure, which in itself is another risk factor for kidney disease. Uh, so, if you will, healthy living, avoiding diabetes and high blood pressure can go a long way to preventing kidney disease in many of us. Some of us are born with a genetic tendency to kidney disease, like polycystic kidney disease. There's not a whole lot one can do um, to avoid advanced kidney disease, but there are things that even in people with diabetes or with polycystic kidney disease, one can do to reduce um, the rate at which the kidney disease declines. In other words, postpone 
um, as long as possible the need for um, intensive therapies such as dialysis or the need for transplant. When a patient needs to go on to dialysis, what would that be like for, a, for an average patient at the VA? So um, the VA is blessed by having um, one of the better options for dialysis and for kidney transplantation especially. And I'll come back to kidney transplantation uh, in, a, in a little bit. So when a person is identified as having advanced kidney disease, if they already don't have one, they will get sent to a kidney specialist or a nephrologist, someone like myself. Uh, depending on where a veteran lives, that may mean that the veteran has to travel to a site where there is a VA hospital with kidney facilities, with the availability of a nephrologist. In more um, rural, remote parts of the United States, um, that may need to be contracted out to the private sector, where there may be many more nephrologists more um, available, more readily available nearby. And it's a nephrologist then that can better predict um, when dialysis is going to be necessary and helps educate the patient and prepare them for the coming days. Um, once they get to a point where they need to start dialysis, we have the option of providing them with one of two forms of dialysis. One is where a, um, a um, series of um, uh, uh, tubes are placed into one's bloodstream, so blood is removed from the, blood, from the circulation and it uh, goes into a, a dialysis machine that cleans the blood of the impurities that have accumulated because one's own kidneys aren't working, and then the blood is returned to the patient. The typical treatment is about three to four hours, three times a week, usually done at a transplant, sorry, at a dialysis unit, but it can uh, be something um, veterans and other capable patients can learn to do at home as well. The other option is a form of dialysis which is much easier for the person to do himself called peritoneal dialysis where a tube is placed inside a person's abdomen and the patient then puts a certain fluid into the abdomen, let it, lets it jostle around there for a little bit and then drains it out again. And um, by doing a series of such exchanges where fluid is put in, it purifies the blood, you take out the fluid now that contains the impurities that come from the blood and you put in a new fresh tube of fluid that then collects more impurities and removes it. Are people intimidated by that? They can be which is why it is important if you know you have kidney disease to get to a nephrologist as soon as it's practical so that you can have many weeks, months if necessary to come to terms with uh, what this illness means, what the future holds, what um, your options for management are. And I think the more educated and more informed you are, the more capable you are of dealing with this rather serious disease that fortunately has um, some excellent treatment options today. So going way back now, because I think we, we kind of missed <laughs> we this. We did jump ahead. Um, would be what are the functions of the kidney? So, um, you know, I'm going to say something that reflects my bias and my own fascination with this organ called the kidney. We think of it as the smartest organ in the body, smarter even than the brain. 
um, it has a lot of functions. Um, the one that is most familiar to, to people is the function that we replace with dialysis, where the function of the kidney is to take a variety of impurities that, that um, accumulate in the blood from our diet, from the metabolism or the activity of other organs and tissues, and then filter out all of the impurities uh, and that's what comes out in a normal person's urine. So it's full of the stuff that we don't need. But the kidney is so smart that it reclaims everything that comes into the initial urine so that you only lose what you need to lose. Um, and it's done, does that by a very complicated system. We have a series of little sieves that sieve the blood and all the water that's in the blood comes out, but it contains all sorts of good stuff that we can't afford to lose. And at several different points along the kidney, various, if you will, um, substations of the kidney um, work to reclaim everything that's in that urine that we can't afford to lose. Stuff like potassium and magnesium and sodium and chloride and, and even many hormones that enter the urine that shouldn't be lost are reclaimed by the kidney. So the first function then is to, is to remove all of the impurities that accumulate without losing anything that's important. Uh, the second function is to precisely determine how much water we need to keep. Um, and that's because the kidney can sense exactly how much water that, uh, that we have taken um, uh, by drinking, can sense precisely how much water has been lost through our skin by sweating. And if we have lost a lot of fluid in our sweat or have not drunk enough fluids, then the kidney will put out as little water as possible to prevent us from getting dehydrated. And if we drink a whole lot, we could drink up to 20 liters or five gallons in the day and we wouldn't drown in our own water because the kidney is capable of putting out all that water. And that's just one of many, many functions the kidney has. The kidney isn't just a filtering organ. It also is a very important um, organ that makes a number of hormones um, that is important for us. Vitamin D, which is a very important vitamin, won't function if it wasn't converted by the kidney into its active form. The bone marrow won't be able to make um, the red stuff that circulates in our blood called red cells without a hormone that the kidney makes called erythropoietin that is what is required for the bone marrow to churn out those red cells. Uh, there are many other hormones that the kidney makes that signal to the liver, signal to the brain, signal to the, to the, um, to the stomach, that helps many other organs to function uh, effectively. So, you know, the kidney um, is such a precise and wonderful organ that a kidney dialysis machine is a very imperfect replacement for kidney function. When someone loses kidney function, is it typically, you just talked about multiple functions of the kidney. Yes. Um, do they lose all those functions? Uh, does the kidney essentially die off? Or is it um, just the filtering function? That's the most common type of kidney disease is where there is a decline in all of kidney's functions. That kind of decline in function is what leads to the need for dialysis or a kidney transplant um, down the road. 
There are some kidney diseases that are very selective that affect one function and not the other. The ability to claim, reclaim sodium, the ability to reclaim potassium, the ability to appropriately um, uh, keep the pH in the blood and all of the body fluids at the right place. Um, there can be very selective defects in the kidney that affect um, one or the other of these types of functions that may not lead to an overall decline in kidney function or the need for dialysis. Well, with how important the kidney is, uh, say you're in need of a transplant, how does one get the ball rolling on getting a kidney transplant? So um, I um, was fortunate to have been associated with the kidney transplant program at the VA in Iowa City from the very uh, beginning. And having worked at both the university and at the VA, I can tell you that the, the kidney transplant benefits a veteran has at the VA is um, unmatched by anything that the private sector can offer um, in uh, this university or in any other parts of the country. Um, so a veteran who needs um, to go on dialysis is automatically a potential transplant candidate. So a kidney transplant is given to those who would otherwise um, need dialysis to stay alive. Um, today in the United States, we have over half a million people who are on chronic dialysis. Um, about 100,000 of them are on the kidney transplant waiting list. 100,000 because we don't have enough kidneys to give everybody who needs a transplant. Um, when a person gets to the point where dialysis is being considered, the nephrologist is also asking himself or herself, will this person benefit from a kidney transplant? And not everybody will, so uh, um, the nephrologist will make his or her own initial determination whether this seems to be someone who is likely to benefit. And then that person is sent to a transplant center. And the VA in Iowa City happens to be one of only five approved kidney transplant centers within the VA program nationwide. And it's the only transplant center in the country in the, in the VA system that is approved to do pancreas transplants, which is what diabetics with kidney failure need, a combined kidney and a pancreas transplant. And so we see patients who come here from all over the country and um, the care they get before their transplant, the care they get after their transplant, is thanks in no small part due to the generous benefits that the, um, the Veterans Administration has for veterans with kidney disease. Mm -hmm. So say you do need a kidney transplant and you had a friend who wanted to donate their kidney to you, how feasible is that? So that's an excellent question. So I told you that there are 100,000 patients on the kidney transplant waiting list. That's because there are not enough um, kidneys to go around. And because there are not enough deceased donor kidneys, the option of living donation as a way to supplement the organ shortage has come into increasing prominence in recent years. It is important to state that the first a successful kidney transplant occurred between two identical twins. Uh, in, um, one was the donor and the other was a recipient. And it's those sorts of circumstances that allowed us to determine what it takes to, 
to do the transplant, what it takes to keep the kidney functioning without rejection and so on. But living donation after the initial um, introduction of the specialty was not the most common way in which transplants happen. They happen from deceased donors, but because of the shortage, we have now increasingly turned to living donors and um, half as many of the donors in the country now are living donors since they supply one kidney and a deceased donor supplies two, one in three um, kidneys transplanted in the country today come from living donors. And we have now um, perfected the ability to pretty much take any living donor who is healthy enough to donate and find a way to benefit their own recipient. Mm. Most of the time, that living donor can directly trans uh, directly donate to the re recipient that they have that that is close to them, their sibling, their parent, their child, their acquaintance, their spouse. But sometimes there are barriers to direct donation between a living donor and his or her intended recipient. It could be antibodies the recipient has. It could be that the blood type is not compatible. But we now have ways if you will, to find other mismatched donor-recipient pairs and, if you will, exchange donor organs so that the, the recipients of either intended donors get to benefit from the gift of life from one of these donors. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So how safe are kidney transplants nowadays? So um, it is one of the safer um, major surgeries we have today. I say that because only about 1% of um, kidney transplant recipients on average die within the first year after a transplant. So the one year mortality is really of a, of a very low magnitude. But the more important comparison here isn't so much as how well do transplant recipients do following their kidney transplant. I think the more appropriate comparison is how well do they do compared to um, not being transplanted? And there the difference is enormous. Um, so I told you that 500,000 people are getting chronic dialysis in the country in a year. About 20% of them will not survive the first year of dialysis. Hmm. Oh, wow. um, those that are well enough to get to the kidney transplant wait list um, and are deemed to be able to benefit from a kidney transplant as, as well as all the rigors of the very strong medications we have to use, um, uh, have a risk of dying on the waiting list of about 4% or 1 in 25. While if they get a kidney transplant, that fa that falls to about one percent or one in a hundred. So a kidney transplant for now is superior to almost any other option we have today, and it's such a major advance over um, dialysis that it is pretty much what we would recommend for anybody who does not have any other major illness that compromises their ability to benefit from a kidney transplant, because a kidney transplant only replaces kidney function. It doesn't help the person who's got bad heart disease or bad liver disease, and their um, expected ability to benefit, therefore, may be limited. Last topic I really want to talk to you about, well, second to last topic, 
Let's do the fun stuff first. What do you like to do outside of being a doctor? Um, so my wife thinks I don't do enough. <laughs> yes. Um, I um, tend to work long hours at work, but I like to travel. And as we have um, gotten older um, and our children have grown up, we've found ourselves with um, a little bit more flexibility in, in making quick travel plans, a little more ability to travel any time of the year um, without being mindful of whether it's the school year. Um, and we've been fortunate enough to be healthy enough to be able to travel. And that I would say is my greatest pleasure outside of medicine. Very nice. The last topic I really want to talk about I'm really interested in is the hepatitis C uh, kidney or positive kidneys that uh, come from this VA or and can be transplanted into people. Can you talk a little bit about that program, how it came to be? Um, it's really pretty neat. Um, yes, so um, many deceased donors um, have conditions that may make their organs unsuitable for transplantation. For example, they may die themselves with poor kidney function. Clearly, those kidneys can't be given to um, the living because it wasn't sufficient to sustain the person who died. Certain deceased donors have certain serious infections that can pose a risk to the recipient, especially the recipient who's also on very strong drugs that weaken their immune system. And weakening their immune system is, an, is a necessity to allow the transplanted kidney or any transplanted organ for that matter to keep working uh, without being rejected by the host, the person that receives the organ. Uh, one of the serious infections that we would never consider um, uh, giving to a recipient was a disease called hepatitis C. And that was because we didn't have any treatment for hepatitis C. Um, confluence of two separate events has led us to a situation where we now have a number of hepatitis C positive organs and the ability to treat the recipient of a hepatitis C positive organ. So before we had cure available for hepatitis C, which was really in the last four or five years. Uh, hepatitis C was um, a deadly disease if acquired by a recipient for the first time with the organ transplanted. Now we have the ability to, to cure them within 12 weeks of therapy. And the confluence of events is the unfortunate occurrence of the opioid epidemic where in the last year I believe 60,000 people died, mostly young otherwise healthy people who um, were injecting drugs, sharing needles, and giving themselves inadvertently hepatitis C. And so a number of high quality organs, if you will, that um, uh, are coming from people infected with hepatitis C have become available. And that together with the availability of ready treatment has meant that we have the ability to transplant these organs to recipients knowing fully well that they will immediately acquire hepatitis C, uh, anticipating that 
acquisition, we start them on treatment for hepatitis C as soon as they receive the organ transplant. And we, if you will, preempt and avoid the almost certain occurrence of hepatitis C. And within a few weeks, they are cured of the disease that they never actually had. And uh, they go on to do very well. Um, and our VA is the first VA in the country that has offered this option. And what it does is not only allow veterans and others to receive high quality organs from relatively healthy young donors, but also to substantially shorten their waiting time because not everybody waiting in line, these 100,000 people I talked about, um, are at centers that um, transplant hepatitis C positive organs. Not every one of the 100,000 on the list is willing to take an organ from someone that may have engaged in certain risky behaviors. But for those that understand the risks and are willing to um, uh, do this procedure, waiting times around the country have come down dramatically from as much as five years to five weeks. Wow. And we have been able to benefit some of our veterans as well who have um, found that they've not had to wait very long to get these organs because there's not many, not many other centers around here that are uh, ready to do this just yet. Fantastic. Well, I'd really like to thank you for coming on our podcast. And, um, My pleasure. Thank I you. I think that'll be it for today. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.